how do you progress art, a project? Uh, how do you progress it or how do you make things that are new if you don't continue to like bubble and blend and form ideas? Welcome to another episode of Talk About the Industry. Today, our illustrious guest is choreographer Robin Maneko Williams. Robin Maneko Williams began making her own work in 2001 through Hubbard Street Dance Chicago's Inside Out Choreographic Workshop, with whom she was a dancer for 12 seasons. She has since created multiple premieres for Hubbard Street and has also choreographed for Pacific Northwest Ballet, Royal New Zealand Ballet, Malpazo Dance Company, Charlotte Ballet, Grand Rapids Ballet, and Ballet Idaho. Her works have been presented at the Kennedy Center, the Harris Theater for Music and Dance, Jacob's Pillow, American Dance Festival, the Joyce Theater, MCA Chicago, and others. Named by Dance Magazine in 2014 as one of 25 to watch and best choreographer by Chicago Mag's Best of Chicago 2016. Robin is a four-time Princess Grace Foundation USA grant recipient, and has been thrice recognized as one of New City's players, 50 people who really perform for Chicago. Collaborations include projects with The Second City, Manual Cinema, Caliphone, Verger, Kyle Vetker, and more. Please welcome Robin to our podcast. Hi, Robin. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. I, uh, I'm so excited to have you because... I, we have such an interesting relationship because I, we've worked together when you were, uh, when you were a dancer and I was a lighting director and I've also designed for you. I've also helped, uh, other designers design for you, uh, as, a, as their lighting director or assistant. And we've worked at Hubbard street. We've worked on, uh, some independent projects and, um, I just really, I love your work. I love your creative process. And I love, uh, I love how it kind of fits into the industry as a whole, the kind of, um, you know, I think, I think it's easy for people to think about ballet or contemporary dance as something that like only people in the arts might enjoy. But, uh, I think someone with your style and aesthetic, blends what's really great about contemporary dance and ballet training with stuff that's just like really cool, you know? <laughs> and I think a lot of that's just, you have really phenomenal taste, but, um, <laughs> I, it's been great for me to see, uh, to see your career progress and to see where you're going and be a part of it in, uh, in a couple of small ways. So I'm really excited to have you here and to talk to, with you about it. Thank you, Matt. Sure. Um, why don't we start from the beginning? I, I'd love to hear, uh, I'd love to hear the early stages of Robin, how she, why she got into dance and, uh, how she ended up at Hubbard street. Sure. The early stages of Robin. <laughs> um, the first well, tome. <laughs> <laughs> a legend goes that I was bugging my mom for dance lessons when I was three years old. Oh, really? Yeah. She was like, hold your horses. You might not want to do it. I don't uh -huh. want to waste money on bad dance lessons. <laughs> You're just going to grow out of it. Yeah. And so I, um, I waited two years mm -hmm. and when I was five, I just, I kept on bugging her. Yeah. And so she took me to her 
dance teacher. Mm-hmm. My mom had danced until she was 18 when she had me. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So I guess, you know, from a very early age, mm-hmm. I grew up um, with the influence of my mom and yeah. um, like rifling through her drawers and finding leotards and point <laughs> shoes and um, in hindsight, I think that's definitely what led me to dance is just that I just love my mom. I love my mom and yeah. I want to, I wanted to be like her and just to like do what she did. So yeah. yeah so when I was five, I started at Hinsdale dance Academy mm-hmm. with um, Missy Vaughn, who was yeah. my mom's dance teacher. Oh, wow. Wow. I agree wholeheartedly. I think mama Donna is one of the most fantastic people on the planet. She's the best. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Uh, I've met both of your parents and I think it's great that, you know, your dad's a CPA, right? Yes. And so, you know, two parents, one of whom danced, but one of whom maybe didn't and, you know, has a more traditional career, but they both seem at least outwardly to be very supportive of the work that you've done and the choices that you've made, um, which I think is key to to the next generation of choreographers and artists really finding their voice, you know, is, is support for them to try it out. Yeah. My parents have been just amazingly supportive from the time I was five. Yeah. I mean, from the time where they had to drive me to dance lessons Mm -hmm. every day of the week Mm -hmm. and then drive me from high school downtown to Chicago to take classes at Hubbard street and, and then into my professional career, yeah. you know, they're at every show. Um, they still are yeah. when they can be now with Knox. Uh, I wouldn't, can, I wouldn't be able to continue doing what I'm doing yeah. if it wasn't for my parents. That's lovely. I, I think, uh, my parents were also very supportive. Um, I think they, they questioned, <laughs> they questioned whether I should do it because they also were performers. They were opera singers, uh, that went into academia. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my father was always sort of like, oh, well, I guess the sins of the father are exhibited on the children. Right. And my sister's an actress and my, my mother was like, well, you know, you could always do something else, <laughs> you know, and she, she would just occasionally like lay that nugget down, but they also have been really supportive. And I think, uh, 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 I think it's, uh, it's something that really resonates with me because I, you know, the trials and tribulations in my career, I, you know, I've talked those out with my parents, with friends and colleagues and like having a supportive network is so necessary. And it's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast because I want to connect with that network. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's yeah. So, so you started taking classes at eventually at Hubbard Street at the Lucani Dance Studio, right? Yeah, when I was 12. Wow. I started taking classes there. Wow. Um, every Saturday morning, I would go take class mm-hmm. with Ron DeJesus, yep. who was my all-time idol. Yep, former Harvard Street dancer, yeah. Uh, now, you joined River North uh, when? What was the... It was, you were pretty joined, young, right? Yeah, I was 17 wow. when I joined River North. Wow, I know. good for you. Wow. Crazy to think about it now. I mean, back then I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember joining the company. Mm-hmm. I I graduated early, mm-hmm. like six months early from high school. So I could start with River North. Oh, yeah. And I remember um, being in rehearsal. I was about like four months in or so. Mm-hmm. And I had to ask uh, the directors if I could have a day off to go to prom. <laughs> and they just about like... <laughs> 
they have just about kicked me out of the studio. Oh my God. They just couldn't even believe it. <laughs> and now, yeah, I think back about that. It just did it let you go? They let me go. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. How funny. Wow. Yeah, they really were um River North. It was such formative, important years for me. Yeah. I hear people talk about their university experiences, mm-hmm. and I really feel like um yeah, those years were so precious. Yeah. Those people are so precious to me. Yeah. They truly raised me and took care of me and taught me so much. And I I still feel like that. I don't see them as often yeah. as I would like to, but yeah. whenever I do see any of them, it's you know, it's just right back. And I it's funny, I also feel mm-hmm. like right back in the relationship that we had yeah. at that time. I feel like kind of like a giddy, awkward 17 year old, (laughs) um, just in awe, you know, of of these dancers and these directors. Yeah. How funny. Yeah. I, I definitely, I mean, you know, you're, you know, and I've worked with Todd Clark as well. And like when Todd met me, I was a senior in college and like, we've been working together for years, but like, even now still, I like, you know, it kind of, it feels like the, like the, the uncle and nephew relationship or the, you know, it's very like, you know, I, I still feel like I was a senior in college going like, Oh, I don't know how to do this as a living, but you live in Chicago, right? You know, like that kind of thing. So I definitely understand that relationship. That's great. It's lovely to hear. I think, um, I think it's rare for, uh, I, I don't think that it's rare for people involved in any kind of arts organization to have that kind of support. But I do think it's rare for uh, for a 17 year old to be in a company that's filled with those kinds of high level talents, you know? Yeah, I I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it was just like that's just I was just lucky. I yeah. I was lucky that I was in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. I had been studying with Frank Chavez. Oh um, yeah, right. Lou Conti yeah. while I was in high school. Yeah. And so he had at that point just taken over co-directorship of River North. Gotcha. So there was just a lot that was organic mm-hmm. about the move from student to yeah. um, River North. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, I just really had great people yeah. looking out for me and guiding me. And um, when I was 17, I moved out of my house wow. and moved into the dining room of one of the dancers and <laughs> really, yeah, they just really took me under their wings. That's lovely. That's really lovely. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, I I've seen that kind of, um, uh, parental or maternal, uh, feeling towards the younger dancers that we had at Hubbard street while we were there as well. You know, like, uh, Johnny McMillan and Emily LaRiche come to mind. They both joined Hubbard street too, when they were super young, you know, and, when we went out on tour, it was like, you know, but I remember Taryn and I sort of like, there's a, there's a little parental protre- protection, you know, when you're on the streets of Germany and they're there for the first time, you know, you're kind of like, okay, they're not my children, but they're kind of our children, you know? Uh, and it's a nice feeling on, on both ends. I think, you know, on the, on the one side, when you're that young and you're doing, you know, making this big life change and trying to make it as an artist, it's great to have, those kinds of mentors and friends and that kind of emotional support, you know, 
But on the flip side, when you have people to take care of, it makes you feel, I think, even more connected to the people around you. Um, and that's something I really love about our industry. That's not, you know, that's that's dancers, that's designers and technicians, that's actors and directors, that's musicians. I mean, I think it's inherent in the work that we do. Um, I really do. Cool. So you were, how long were you a dancer at River North? I danced at River North for four years. Okay. I took a year to audition mm-hmm. and um, freelance a little bit. Yeah. Um, it was mostly, yeah, mostly just I felt like I needed a change. Yeah. And Hubbard Street had always been a goal of mine since I was nine. Yeah. It was oh, wow. like my dream to be in Hubbard Street. And I had, <laughs> I started the audition process with Hubbard Street when I was 16. Oh, wow. That was my first yeah. So I think by the time I was 21 mm-hmm. or so this year off, I had auditioned at least five times yeah. and um, I decided, okay, I'll give it one more go. Yeah. And it was an open audition mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, 200, 300 people. Oh, wow. And that's the one that it happened for me. That's awesome. But really, that was like my, it's like, okay, if this doesn't work out, let's move on. Yeah. You try. Yeah. It's, it's time. And, yeah. and it just happened that it, the timing was right. Yeah. I, I love so much that, uh, that all of that, this whole story mostly takes place in Chicago, you know, like I, as, as a kind of a Midwestern transplant, uh, I, <laughs> I love Chicago so much because I, but you know, I chose Chicago, uh, twice in my life now, <laughs> but you know, I just love that I, when I think of Chicago, I think of people like you, uh, and, uh, you know, and Sandy Cooksey and like people that are connected with the Chicago art scene. And I just think like, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's just great to put people to the feeling that you have with the city. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great. So obviously, and, and for the context of the listener, Lucani Dance Studio, uh, what Lucanti uh, founded Hubbard Street Dance Chicago. And so the Lucani Dance Studio, which unfortunately recently just closed because of COVID-19, uh, was connected with Hubbard Street. You know, they're in the same building. They're uh, a lot of the same people running it. Um, and of course, there also is a connection with Claire Bataille, who we should talk about. Uh, yeah. uh, her and your work with her. Um, but you know, really, really a Chicago landmark, the, both the studio and the, and the dance company. So I'm not surprised that you, you know, audition for them over and over and over again. <laughs> so you eventually made it in. Um, how was that, how was that process different or, or the experience different from river North? My experience dancing at Hubbard's Yeah. Street? It was very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that when I got to Hubbard street, you know, I, I was sort of, I was young still, yeah. but I had had four to five years of professional experience. Yeah. Um, but that experience, my experiences before Hubbard street were very different mm-hmm. than my experiences in Hubbard street. Mm-hmm. Artistically speaking, yeah, there sure. was a lot that I hadn't been, um, exposed to yeah. yet. And um also there was a change of the guard right mm-hmm. when I joined the company. Yeah. Um the company went from its founder Lou Conti yeah. to being directed by Jim Vincent. Right. They were very different directors. Yeah. Um with different 
different aesthetics. Yeah. So I had sort of grown up, you know, with taking ballet, mm-hmm. studying at Lou Conti's, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a very like, I didn't have a super strong ballet background because my goal was always to be mm-hmm. in Hubbard Street. Yeah. So I didn't spend my time going to summer camps and right. um, or like ABT or yeah. PNB. You know, I, I went to Lou Conti's and I think when I joined Hubbard Street, um, there was a push to like up that technical yeah. level. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of new breadth mm-hmm. for me. I came from a jazz background yeah. and all of a sudden we were doing like Killian and right. um, Nahareen, which was yeah. my, you know, really my saving grace is like, that was a choreographer and that was work that mm-hmm. made sense to me. So I yeah. think like that, that sort of like kept me in the mix and, yeah, and yeah. created some kind of longevity for me at the company. Yeah. Um, that makes yeah, sense. So it was tough. It was like, it was tough, but, um, again, a family, it was a family. Yeah. We spent so much time together. Yeah. We used to tour all the time. Yeah. Um, it really was, they were my family too. And they took mm-hmm. me under their wings as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people in the company, Ron, mm-hmm. Sandy, yeah. Jeff Myers, yeah. Mary, Joey, all yeah. of these people that I looked up to um, growing up and had yeah. posters of on my bedroom walls. <laughs> yeah. And now I was dancing with them. So it was, it was a crazy, it was a crazy jump. Yeah. For me. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, I, I always think of, um, uh, in my context with the dance world was very different because, you know, I, I, uh, I did an undergraduate degree in theater design in the Midwest, which was mostly a program about straight theater, you know, and I did some work on musicals uh, for professional summer stock companies. But when I got to Chicago, I'd never really done any dance. When I started working at Hubbard Street, I, my dance knowledge was like, well, I knew what Swan Lake was. I knew what the Nutcracker was. And like I'd seen a, a couple of ballet companies, but like I had zero concept of uh, of jazz dance that wasn't uh, attached to a Broadway musical or of contemporary dance. and. I think it's so interesting that, you know, where, where jazz and contemporary and ballet kind of fit together. I I've always, and I'm curious if, if you think of this the same way, I've always looked at the industry as, you know, ballet is kind of its, its own thing. Although more and more I see large ballet companies doing contemporary work. Um, and contemporary dance seems to me like take your ballet training, but you know, but ballet is like, it seems like technique is paramount. And, uh, and it's very, it feels very traditional. Uh, and then you, when you go into the contemporary realm, I, what I see is ballet dancers getting to do whatever the fuck they want. (laughs) And to me, that's amazing. Uh, you know, and then jazz tends to be, I think a little more structured, uh, and a little less about technique and a little more about spectacle, I guess. But although there's spectacle built into all of it, just in different aesthetics, is that, would you consider that an accurate view of the industry? I'm, I'm curious because I've never really had this conversation with another dancer. I think that each, each form yeah. has technique mm-hmm. behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just, you know, each form has a different amount of history yeah. and, um, a different sort of evolution. Yeah. Like ballet 
so much history. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jazz, you know, I mean, jazz, not as much, but jazz has yeah. been around for a long time. Modern and yeah. contemporary, I guess is like the, the newest, um, newest of the bunch. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it's hard for me to even like define what contemporary is. I feel right. like it depends on, um, where, when and where you're talking about it. Yeah. Like if, so different in Europe versus the U S yeah. 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 Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess like I always loved Hubbard street because mm-hmm. it felt like it wasn't, I felt like the dancers could do anything. Yeah. I would. Yeah. I was just going to say to me, that was so, what was so impressive was, you know, as I was spending time in the company, it dawned on me, uh, the reason these pieces, the reason all of this rep is so different is because they're using completely different techniques. You know, Gaga is so different from, you know, from contemporary ballet, so to speak, is so different from jazz. And, and, you know, and now I feel like the choreographers I really enjoy, uh, like yourself, the artistic stamp includes, you know, specific use of a different technique. You know, it's almost, I mean, it might be rooted in ballet or contemporary or Gaga, but it, it has their own flavor. Uh, it, it has a different flavor to it. You know, I, when I was in uh, Idaho with Garrett, we um, two years ago, we were designing, I was designing a contemporary program and it had a piece of pennies on it and it had a piece of Craig Davidson's on it. Uh, and Garrett and I were sitting at the table and I was like, oh my God, that looks like Penny, you know? And, <laughs> and that looks like how Craig dances, you know? And we did a, um, uh, and every choreographer that I've recognized, when I see people doing your work, I'm like, oh yeah, obviously that's Robin. Like, you know, <laughs> and it's just, it's almost like the physical, to me, it feels like the physical version of uh, hearing somebody's voice, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like what they're doing with their body, like, oh yeah, that's how Robin sounds, or that's how Robin dances, or that, that feels like her, her, um, not well, her technique, I guess. So do you, do you look at it like that where you're trying to develop a technique or are you just, you know, using the training that you've had and kind of just distilling that down to what you think the piece needs? And if it comes out differently, it comes out differently. I think probably closer to the latter that I I know that all of my experiences, good and bad in the studio and out of the studio are part of me. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to come out of me. Yeah. Um, I think like the most important thing that I always need to remind myself or my priority Mm -hmm. is to um, attain for like authenticity. Yeah. And it's not always like the easiest thing to do because yeah. when your career, when your career is making, mm-hmm. uh, creating things, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a certain level, like there are times where you can just go for it and, yeah. and really just like not think about anybody else. Yeah. Um, and there are times that you don't do that. Yeah. yeah. And I think like within that span or within that scale, mm-hmm. It's important to me to always go back to trying to find like authenticity mm-hmm. um, in what I'm doing and and what I'm putting out there. When I'm in a studio, I'm looking at things I can tell yeah. when it's veering from that path. Yeah, you know, or I'm letting external um, external 
issues, items. Yeah, kind of sure. Like, get me off my path. And then I always need to like, wow. yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, uh, how you transitioned into choreography. Um, and I think this is, uh, uh, this is also a little bit of a love song to, uh, to Hubbard street, as far as creating an environment for dancers to explore that, uh, you know, people that, uh, people that don't work inside dance, I think, uh, might understand that most choreographers started out as dancers, but how do you make that transition? How do you create an environment where you give, you know, dancers the opportunity to explore, right? So talk a little bit about Inside Out. I mean, you were with Hubbard Street for, we said, 12 years, right? 12 years. Yeah, yeah, which is, in, which is incredible. You dance with two really phenomenal companies uh, for a long period of time. And then when you, uh, when you left Hubbard Street, you were doing some freelance projects, but you started choreographing long before you struck out on your own, right? So let's talk about Inside Out and how you got the choreographic bug, I guess. <laughs> Um, well, the choreographic bug really took me by surprise and it didn't oh. come until much, much later. Yeah. I, Inside Out was awesome in that it just allowed us to do something different yeah. and to experience with whatever aspect of, um, creation that we wanted to, whether it be yeah. lighting or costumes or choreography. Mm-hmm. And so I, that was one of my favorite things that Jim did yeah. at Hubbard's I think it, it's so important mm-hmm. and it really um, planted a seed for so many of us that, you know, maybe some of us knew we wanted this and others yeah. didn't. Like I didn't, I never, ever thought I would choreograph. Just for, just for context. So, uh, so it was Jim that started Inside Out. Uh, what Hubbard Street would do at the end of their season is they, they this Inside Out program we're talking about, they would essentially find a small or cheap performance space and essentially just, uh, you know, with a small audience and they would say like, here dancers, you've got, you know, uh, a week and a half, two weeks to make work on each other and anyone that wants to choreograph can. And it's, you know, it's almost like that to me, it was almost like the, um, dance version of a 24 hour play festival. You know, a lot of, a lot of companies will put together a, a small, a series of small plays in 24 hours. And it's just, and it's really just an exercise and like make the work and see where it goes and don't, don't get too attached to it. Right now, obviously this is, wasn't, you know, people staying up all night and trying to find props out of a, out of their closets. You know, this is, I think much more, um, much more of a, a valid show, but you know, it was at least from my point of view, it seemed like, you know, take an idea and run with it and just see where it goes. And if it doesn't go anywhere, who cares? Yeah. It was always, um, it was always talked about mm-hmm. that it's not really about product or like yeah. making masterpieces. It's yeah. about the experience and, and just doing something yeah. together. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I participated in that every year yeah. and did different things. I was actually thinking, uh, recently mm-hmm. about my first piece I ever did. Oh, wow. What was it for inside out? And it was like, not even a piece. I mean, it wasn't really choreography. Yeah. And I find it interesting because it's, it represents, it's like represents kind of more where, what I'm interested in doing now. Oh, wow. We, uh, we were in partnership mm-hmm. with, uh, an elementary school 
on the west side. Oh, okay. And so, like, a squad, like, five dancers, and um, Jeff Myers had a camera. Mm-hmm. Myself, we went to this elementary school and hung out with these, like, a class of first graders yeah. for a couple of days. Yeah. And each dancer was tasked with um, hanging out with a kid mm-hmm. and doing, like, an, an interview with them. Yeah. And then asking them for some dance moves. Yeah. And then the, like the product or the piece was kind of like this combination of the video of the kids talking, um, the dancers improving mm-hmm. um, upon like the kids' dance moves, and we like projected it on a screen. And oh, and that's so cool. It was like such a great. It was such a great experience, and again, like it to me uh, represented what inside out was because I'm sure like the piece was, you know, not a masterpiece, (laughs) but the experience was, was for us. Like the experience was something that I think that we all um, really, it was very rewarding. Yeah. It's so indicative of the, the heart that Harvard street has and the, and that the dance community has, you know, I, um, I'd love that idea of interviewing some first graders, asking them for dance moves, and then just smashing it together into a piece. I think that's so great. It was so fun. Yeah. And they had great moves. Yeah. They had like really <laughs> kids. Like mm-hmm. they they have great moves. Mm-hmm. They have really insightful things to say yeah. that will just floor you. Yeah. I, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. So 2001, you started doing choreographic work and then were you, were you, um, were you always trying to come up with something for inside out or was it kind of a dabble here and a dabble there? And then later on it developed. I think I pretty much, uh, pretty much made something every year. Yeah. yeah. The first time that I was actually, or I had an opportunity that mm-hmm. was a little bit more serious to choreograph was, mm-hmm. Uh, when Taryn asked me to work on Harold and the Purple Crayon in yeah, 2010. Yeah. So that really was my first, um, my first go at making something for real. Yeah. Yeah. I love that piece so much. I really do. And, and that process was so fun for, for me. Uh, so Harold, let's, let's give a little more context about that. Harold was a piece that was uh, partially sponsored by the Kennedy Center, right? And it was, and you and Terry, both, uh, Terry Marling, both choreographed, essentially it was about an hour long piece, I think. And Mm -hmm. you guys each kind of took a chunk of the story. And from the get go, uh, Taryn at the time was the artistic director for Hubbard street too. And she kind of came up with the idea, I think because of Donovan, right. Her son, uh, and, and Harold and the purple crown, I think is a, a great book. And like, there's so much in there that's just inherent about like, being creative with the circumstances around you. And I've never seen, I've done a lot of kids shows over the years and I've never seen kids react the way that they reacted to Harold. You know, (laughs) it's just like, it's a bunch of dancers in like white onesies in this weird cartoon fantasy land. And like, I, I think it's so, I think it's so great. There's something so like, beautiful and simple about just like the way that the narrator talks directly to the kids. I, you know, I'd look at the piece as a whole and I think like there's so much heart that went into this, you know, mm-hmm. did you, did you have difficulty? One thing that I think about a lot, uh, is did you have difficulty coming up with 
enough material. You know, I, I look at choreographic process and I think like, how do you ever make anything that's more than 30 seconds long? You know, <laughs> because I mean, and you, you know, it's not like choreographers are given a long period of time, right? You might, you might have four weeks to do a piece that ends up being 30, 40 minutes. I feel like with Harold, I, I didn't really have much trouble with that just because, um, so my section was the first half of the book yeah, yeah. and there was something, um, easier to roll through, yeah. you know, that 25 or 30 minutes of, uh, choreography because, you know, you're, you're working on the bedroom scene and then right, you're working yeah. on, uh, the apple tree scene. Mm-hmm. And then, so you, it was broken into these very specific, uh, scenes that a story had to be told, mm-hmm. you know, we were, we were also thinking about the imagery, the projections, the yeah. props, um, the music, all of yeah. the birds, like phenomenal music that we were so lucky. Yeah. To yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It was really fun. It was so great. Yeah. I, I just loved the opportunity to make that thing. And, um, I, I also remember Terry and I talking about, you know, within the choreography to do what we do and to not try to make it kid-like or yeah. friendly. Like yeah. kids, kids are fine. Yeah. Yeah. They it's get it. Like, yeah. yeah. So um, I was really proud of that. I think there was a little bit of trepidation initially about like, are kids really going to stay involved in this for a 60 minute show? Like yeah. that seems, uh, you know, but I, but I think that trepidation was always far outside of the creative team. You know, I think we all felt and knew that, like, if we trust in the work and trust that the kids are going to want to follow this and like if, you know, just try and make something appropriate that they'll they'll want to sit there, they'll they'll like it, they'll react to it, you know, in the way that we think. And and they really did. Every time we did that show, you know, the kids were so into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing is yeah. to just be in the audience with yeah. the kids and, um, yeah, see, see how they do participate in how they did pay attention. You're right. Yeah. That, was, that was a big, uh, question mark. I think, I mean, at, at the time, I don't know if Terry had kids, yeah. but I definitely did not. Yeah. And I was never around kids. <laughs> I remember sitting in the audience at the Kennedy Center with my headset on next to a mother and her two kids the older child was a little boy and he was in the seat next to me and he couldn't have been six years old. Uh, you know, here I am, I sit down, I've got my notepad and I've got a headset on and I'm like, Oh man, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm second guessing all the choices we made in tech rehearsal. Right. (laughs) And you know, I'm kind of got my own stuff. Right. And this kid's kind of looking at me like, why does he have this headset on? He, so his mother and I strike up a conversation and just, you know, oh, actually I'm on the technical team. I designed the lighting for this. And she turns to her son and says, did you hear that? I don't know what his name, Jeffrey, or what, you know, did you hear that, Jeffrey? This is the lighting designer. And I said, yeah, I get to choose uh, what color all the lights are. And he was like, whoa. And then like the curtain opened and, you know, it's a, it's a night scene in the bedroom. There's a lot of blue and some textures on the proscenium and he just like turns to me with the biggest eyes oh. like it's so blue you know and I, <laughs> all of my trepidation about the show just like went in the garbage can I was like okay they get it yeah. <laughs> so 
Oh, that's so great. So, so Harold, Harold and the Purple Crown, definitely the first big project that you were involved in. Um, and then I, did you, was that a, you know, I've had moments in my career where I handle something I didn't think I could handle. And I go like, oh yeah, maybe I should try that again. Did you think of choreography differently after that project? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I was very surprised at, um, how comfortable I felt Yeah. in that role, standing in the front of the room. I mean, yeah. as a dancer, I, I was one to stand in the back and to, mm-hmm. I was just, it's sort of my personality. I'm sort of a shy person. And so yeah. like I, I was as a dancer too. Yeah. Um, it took like a lot of inner oomph to mm-hmm. have those moments of boldness. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, that part of things was very surprising to me. Yeah. Um, just that comfort with being on the other side of the lens. Yeah. And it did spark um, interest to try more. Like, yeah. oh, you know, it's it's sort of like a little bit of a domino effect or maybe a snowball that mm-hmm. you get through one idea. Oh, that kind of inspires you for this other idea. Can I actually yeah. try this? Okay, I can try it. I have the platform to do it. Let's do it. Yeah. And I think that's from Harold. That's sort of how things evolved for me. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, the we got I got to design for you a couple more times uh, in uh, Dance Evolve and for Inside Out. That was really fun. Yeah. When you did Recall for the first Dance Evolve, which was kind of like a, a you know, like Inside Out, but as a proper program, I remember that piece was a really big deal for me, uh, and it felt like it was a really big deal for you because everyone that saw that was like this is so cool. You know, like (laughs) that was a great project for me just in general, because not just you, but also like Jonathan Fredrickson and a number of the other uh, dancers that were choreographing on the piece uh, in the program, rather, you know, we had something like two programs and eight total pieces, or I forget how many, these are all dancers that I knew and loved and adored working with. And then here they're handing me this like really good work, you know, like I think we, you know, I think the company was like, was like, well, we're going to do a season at the MCA and like, you know, it's kind of a smaller theater, but like this could, this could work, you know, uh, everyone seems to like inside out. And then we got there and it was like this, I was like, this program is awesome. (laughs) You know, (laughs) recall for me was when I was like, Robin's taste is killer, you know? And I think it's, I really do think it's part of what sets you apart. Um, uh, Sam Begich and I were talking about this. Sam, of course, for years was a production electrician at uh, Hubbard Street and has worked with you on um, undercover episodes. And uh, Sam's a great guy and a great stagehand and production electrician, but also like a really creative person. And he was telling me about going to see Califone. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, uh, when you were getting ready to do the project uh, for Claire, uh, Sam was like, yeah, Andrew was like, Hey, we're going to go see this band. Do you want to come with? And he was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, and then I got there and it was like, wait, this is the group that's doing the music for that project. Like, (laughs) you know, how do you, uh, and you said this a little bit earlier, you know, that like every experience that you have is like all game to put into the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think particularly your music choices are fantastic, but like, how do you, how do you, uh, I mean, how do you approach making work? I guess it's such a, a generic question, right? But like, 
you know, do you find music first? Does, is there an idea and then it's stuck in your brain and you hear music and it connects or like, does music not come in until later? You know, it's so different for each choreographer. So I'm so curious about how you, how you put that stuff together. I think for each, each piece, it's different. I would say the majority of the time, the idea or very small, uh, inspiration comes first. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I work a little bit and then, you know, I collect music that fits the moods that I'm trying to feel or roll with. Yeah. Um, But yeah, musically things have uh, happened differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are times where the music is recorded, all recorded music and I, I like fuss with that playlist till the very end. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can see that. And there are times like with Caliphone and with Robbie Haynes that yeah. you and I worked with Matt. Like mm-hmm. those guys have composed music for the piece and we create yeah. together. Just so we, cool. <laughs> as, you know, yeah. We like start together, work separately, come together, work separately. And right. the and the music and the pieces made kind of simultaneously. Yeah. And and even within that, like Robbie's process with me is very different than uh what Tim and my process was. Yeah. Yeah. When you're working with a composer, how do you try and put your ideas into words? You know, or do you even try to put them into words only? Or is is it, you know, is it visual research? Is it just like you know, what kind of music they are really in tune with, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> you know, how, because I, as someone who's never like had a conversation with a composer and was like, here, make this piece of music for this thing I'm trying to do. You know, I, I feel like I would be super like, you know, just like make something and I'll use it. Cause I wouldn't want to stomp on their process. Right. Or, or uh, I'd be afraid to offend them. But that's just my ignorance about the process, I'm sure. I felt that way when I first started working with Robbie. I'd never worked with a composer before. Yeah. And so I think we, and he had never worked with a choreographer. So we were both sort of like treading a little bit more lightly. And now we're whatever, eight years in to (laughs) collaborating together. And so those things happen a lot quicker. You know, those conversations, like we figured out a way that we can be like more direct quickly. Yeah. I think many people, myself included, think like, yeah, I've got good taste in music. But then like then I'll hear, you know, then I'll see one of your pieces or I'll hear uh, the soundtrack for Echo Mine and I'll be like, God damn it. This music is so good. And I had no clue it existed. Right. With Echo Mine, I just got I mean, I was just working with someone who is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that process was very different, too. Like Tim and I, we kind of just talked on the phone. Mm hmm a really long time yeah and we, we talked about claire yeah um who the piece was inspired by we yeah. sent videos rehearsal videos um back and forth uh it was a lot of talking it was a lot of yeah. just talking about um where we were at and where yeah. i was at with claire and yeah um yeah and then he just made things <laughs> and they were like so uh different mm-hmm. like i never used music like caliphones before yeah yeah and it just like killed it yeah like, I just, 
I love it. I love that soundtrack. That's so good. Let's dig a little deeper into Echo Mine uh, uh, because it's it's one of the one of my favorite projects I've ever been involved with in my career, and I think uh, uh, it's such a it's such a beautiful lesson in like how. Uh, how you can have really deeply personal sentiment in a project without the project um, suffering for it. But let's, let's back up a little bit. So let's talk about Claire and your relationship with her uh, and then how, how the idea for the piece came about. Sure. Well, Claire, she was one of my all time idols. She was a founding member of Hubbard street in Chicago and just, um, just a force Mm -hmm. as a dancer um, as a teacher, as a mentor, yeah. just so like hundreds, yeah. hundreds, thousands of people mm-hmm. in our community. And I was lucky enough to meet her when I was, I think, 15 or 16. Wow. Uh, I started taking classes with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just had this really um, like omnipresent mm-hmm. position in my, in my timeline. Yeah. You know, first as someone I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and idolized mm-hmm. and then as my teacher yeah and she was the one who called me to tell me i got into hubbard street oh how cool and she was the one who welcomed me on my first day mm-hmm. and said this is your new home yeah um she was the one who was at my baby shower oh. you know my wedding in my baby shower yeah. and yeah later in life like i was able to talk with her a little <laughs> with like a little less awkwardness mm-hmm. uh, more as a a person about being a mom and, yeah. and dance and our past experiences and our, you know, the personal professional, um, balance, mm-hmm. all of these things. Yeah. I know that you had the idea to choreograph on her was this was before she got sick, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was trying to think of a project mm-hmm. Another independent project, yeah. um, and I I couldn't think of anything. And the only thing mm-hmm. I don't know how it popped into my mind. Mm-hmm. But I said, I thought, wouldn't it be just like an amazing experience? Yeah, to work with Claire. Yeah, because I like she she taught ballet, and I you still see her dance. Oh yeah, as a teacher. Um, but I hadn't seen her dance anything else, any other yeah. choreography for twenty five years yeah, or so. Sure. And I just thought like, that is just such a rare gem to be able to make something with that person who is your like ultimate person. Right. Right. Um, I I had this idea. Mm -hmm. I asked her about it Mm -hmm. and she, she said, okay, I'm open to trying, you know, (laughs) let's see where it goes. I don't know if I want to like do a big show, but maybe we can do a showing for your mom and Ginger Farley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So she just, yeah. So she said yes to um, trying it out mm-hmm. and like workshopping an idea with me. Yeah. And we had our first rehearsal in October. Yeah. October 2017. Okay. Uh, it was the fall. Mm-hmm. And a month later, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So then we kind of took a couple months off, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, in January, I reconnected with her just to say hi and see how she's doing. And and she said that she would agree to continue our project together. Yeah. Which I think is so indicative of 
Claire as a person and an artist, obviously founding member of Hubbard Street, had an incredible dance career. I knew her as the woman that ran the Lucani Dance Studio. And then, you know, I'd hear these stories from Todd and Sandy and that old school Hubbard Street generation of, of who she was and like how amazing she was, right? So we unfortunately lost her. Uh, and how did this... How did this project transition from it's going to be, you know, making work on Claire to becoming kind of the the power trio that it is, uh, which is not how you would describe it, because you're uh, like a lovely person who doesn't have an inflated sense of ego. But when I think of this project, I think of it as the power trio, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's just me. Um, yeah. So how did, how did, how did it kind of transition into what it became? So originally it was supposed to be a solo for Claire. She got sick. Um, and then in the earlier months of 2018, Mm -hmm. after she was diagnosed, she, we continued to talk, but she Mm -hmm. really wasn't into being into, in the studio until July. And so I, at that moment brought in Jacqueline Burnett, who's a dancer with Hubbard Street. Yeah. Phenomenal dancer. Yeah. Phenomenal. She's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so my thought was, okay, well, maybe if Claire can't dance, mm-hmm. I can make some movement with Jack. Mm-hmm. And then Claire did agree to be in the studio with me. So wow. we, Claire and I worked together in for a month in July, wow. a little bit into August and um, rehearsed wow. and created movement. Um, after that, her health was just, it was too tough for her to yeah. physically continue that. Yeah. So I brought Meredith Dinkolo into the project. I thought, okay, maybe this can be a duet for Mare and Jack. Yeah. Yeah. I think, a, you know, a 50 minute one woman show might be too much for Jack as she's also dancing for Hubbard. Yeah, Street. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I really tried to keep myself out of it Yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And, and finally, there, there just was a moment where it felt it felt right. It yeah. felt like it made sense with the concept of um, the piece and the concept of what we were creating together, that this piece from the beginning was, was about artistic lineage yeah. and about, you know, how I was talking about, you know, I'm just like, my experience is like a mishmash of all of my experiences. And Claire is like a huge part of that. And I yeah. was really curious to see like how she comes out in me or if yeah. she does. And, um, so it made sense if Claire can't dance to like do Claire through me yeah. back to Claire, then at least it could be Claire through me and the other dancers. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, uh, when I started at Harvard street, uh, you and Meredith and Jacqueline were all, uh, company members, but I, you know, I remember walking to the theater and being like, oh my God, I didn't think I would ever see these three dancers on the same stage again. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's so, and it's so good. I mean, all three of you are so good and such, uh, in so in different ways. Uh, I think what's great about, about your work in echo mine is that all three of you, you know, there are moments where you are, where you're doing unison movements, but also all three of you are, are distinctly three different personalities, right? Yeah. Uh, and then what's great about this project is you've been able to combine it with, there's some, uh, footage of you and Claire, uh, in the rehearsal room, 
but then also footage of her, you know, performance footage of her throughout her career. And, and then of course the music from Califone. I, I just think it's a, I think it's an incredible piece and was just a wonderful uh, piece to be a part of. And, you know, and I was just sort of helping with as the assistant technical director. I don't know what you would, what you call my position. I showed up and helped make things happen, <laughs> you know, it was a big, Big deal. Well, it was, it was fun for me because I, because I could just, I, I, it gave me kind of like a, a backseat to just observing, yeah. you know, how this was going on. And uh, I, I just, I was so happy to be a part of it. After the Harris show, um, I kind of switched gears to mm-hmm. creating a second version of Echo Mind. Oh, really? That would include Caliphone playing live. Oh. We called it analog version of echo mind where we would have two yeah one that is like this slick sort of rock show for the proscenium yeah and one that was analog and uh, telephone play live the three dancers but very pared down lighting yeah maybe a little bit of projection but it was much more about the live elements rather than yeah um the visual so we um we started planning this and Booked a show at Thalia Hall, which is an awesome music venue in Chicago. Yeah, great venue. Um, yeah. And started to plan a tour of music venues and um, like music festivals. Yeah. Yeah. With that Echo Mind could uh, perform at, which just was so, is so thrilling to me because yeah. it's, it's uh, like blending this show that means so much to me with music and with yeah. uh, the music scene and mm-hmm. with a different audience and in a new way of presenting what we love and do like presenting dance and yeah. exposing new audiences to this thing. Yeah. And so I am, it, it really made a lot of sense to me. I'm su- super excited about it. Our show at Thalia sadly just got officially canceled. Oh, sorry to hear that. A few days ago. I, I'm confident that it will, it will come back, uh, when it's safe to have live performances again, it's too good of a piece and too malleable to not have a life after the Harris. So I'm, I'm sure we'll be seeing it somewhere again. Um, I think this is a good moment to transition into some of your other work. Um, uh, you've done, um, particularly with undercover episodes, but you've, more than any of the other choreographers that I know, you've kind of opened yourself up to creating work for, uh, I don't even know that it's site specific. It's more like just in a non-theatrical setting. Part of what's so interesting to me about undercover episodes and the work that you've done outside of traditional theaters is that it makes it so accessible to a non-theater audience. Where did your... Uh, inspiration for or where did the idea of like we can dance anywhere sort of come from and how did you put it together into a project i think it was something that evolved later in the process of undercover we did a workshop and then we created this fuller version of the show yeah. premiered at links hall in 2016 which is a very clean slate yeah uh, and after that, we did this little fundraiser for Undercover at the Violet Hour. Which is a great Chicago bar, a great Chicago legend. <laughs> it's a 
classic yeah. legend of Chicago. It's actually where Robbie and I met. Oh, cool. <laughs> he used to bartend there and I used to drink a lot of cocktails there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we ended up talking about music one Which day. Which only shows how cool you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I used to drink a lot of cocktails at the Violet Hour. <laughs> no big deal. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not anymore, sure. <laughs> um yeah, so we did this like little shindig at the Violet Hour, and the Violet Hour has so much character. Yeah, it's just like it's like a it's a character itself. Yeah, and to see how the piece um, fit into that space very oddly with this like color blocking projection yeah. and um, really intimate, close, wild dancing, it just was so cool, and it was such a good feeling to do. So. I think that's really what inspired us mm-hmm. to keep keep putting it and plopping it into these new spaces yeah. and, and see what happens. It's sort of like a fun experiment. And it also aligns with our mission to bring dance, bring movement, bring these like um, you know, little little pieces of art out to the public. Yeah. Accessibility. I think it's so huge. You know, I, I see and hear uh, the entirety of the dance world going like, well, how do we make dance more accessible? How do we make dance more accessible? How do we build a new audience? Meeting people where they are, I think is huge. And it's what's so impressive to me about undercover episodes is like, you know, it's like kind of a simple answer to a really big question in not just dance, but the arts in general right now. Like, how do we make it accessible to people? How do we grow the audience when not everyone has the money or the means to make it into a theater? Yeah, I think my brother, he really changed my way of thinking about the audience. Mm-hmm. He, he prioritized it. Yeah. Much more than it was for me in the past before Undercover episodes. Really? He is, um, he's a graphic designer, art director, and now is in user experience. Oh, wow. So that's just his jam. Like he was all you know, when we're making undercover, well, what about the audience? What's their perspective? Well, you know, what's their experience? I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Do I care? I don't know if I care. Right. Right. I'm I'm just trying to create these like really super strong connections between the dancers and between the music and the dance, you know, I was so focused on like that small kind of microcosm of like the work that it took JT to kind of, to ask me questions and to uh, push me to think, and consider things in a different way. Yeah. And now it it is very important to me. Yeah. It's it's, it's been a really it's been I don't know if it's a one eighty, but it's a big yeah. It's yeah. a big, uh, kind of veer from what I was brought up in and yeah. um, where I would like to go with art, you know, creating. So, and it's not just undercover episodes that you've done sort of non-theatrical work in. Recently, you did a project at the University of Chicago, right? It was called Frankenstein. I think it was like an ode to Mary Shelley. It was actually my collaborator that titled oh, it. Oh, nice, nice. And so how did, how did you, what was that project and, and how was it presented and how did you approach it? Alexandra Wells, who is the director of training at Hubbard Street and mm-hmm. runs HS Pro, approached mm-hmm. me about doing something collaborative and something site specific at the Logan Center. Yeah. Um, Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago. Yes. Um, a beautiful, beautiful space with yeah. like so many um, 
so many like wonderful nooks and crannies yeah. to explore and uh, present. Yeah. And so, yeah, she sort of just asked me to do something and with not a lot of parameters other than like, it has to happen on these days. It has to happen in this corridor. Yeah. And we have limited lights, but other than that, you know, do what you want. So I brought on um, a friend of mine, Melina Osakaitis, who has a band called Idis Fan. I've been wanting to work with her for a long time. And I just thought this was like a great excuse to work together. So we just made this like um, 30 minute installation that included uh, 30 dancers from HS Pro and then Melina and Ray from Ida's Band playing live. Oh, wow. And um, it was Frankenstein themed. So it was a little bit fun and spooky. Um, It was so great. It just, it turned out so great uh, the experience was so great like i i didn't know i felt like it might be a little bit overwhelming to mm-hmm. try to you know space and like yeah figure out how do 30 dancers fit into a, a second floor corridor right and a stairwell and a plaza and like how do you create the audience experience yeah um that makes sense for that because the idea was just that the audience would kind of come in and, and walk through the space like a gallery. Yeah. yeah. So it was a really um, exciting challenge, but I was very surprised at how quickly things came together. And I think it's just because you know, the people we were working with were open and gay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. You want me to run down the stairwell and be there in 30 seconds? Sure. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so wear these like crazy giant hands and yeah. Um, Write my hand against the window, sure. Yeah. So that always makes the process a lot easier and a lot more fun. Yeah, that makes sense. I love, and it's on your website, uh, uh, which is also incredibly well curated. Uh, but there's this great shot. Uh, it, I think from the roof of the building, you can see the um, the um, that kind of like outside. Uh, uh, you know, it's like a little concrete square just out on the interior of the building. And it's, I think it's all of the dancers in this kind of grid formation. And it's, it's such a cool shot, you know, it's like a, to me, it's a great like combination of uh, visual design and choreography all in one moment, you know Um, it's cool and, and out of the ordinary. And also I think, uh, kind of weirdly appropriate because if you think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, like, you know, the, the legend of that story is that, you know, she was at it. She had never, uh, written or published a story and she, uh, was at this, there was this like, you know, party with a bunch of like famous writers and it was, you know, they like decided to have a competition. Everyone needed to write a story that was scary, you know, and then they would read it out loud and vote on whoever made the scariest story. And she was like, obviously a really interesting creative artistic mind, but she was not a published author. And she was, I forget, I'd have to look up the, uh, the other authors in the room, included two very well-known 
male writers. And, you know, the cynical part of me thinks like, well, obviously that's just a dick measuring contest for the dudes. And then <laughs> they got the floor, you know, every overwhelmingly they were like, oh my God, this story is incredible. Like she wiped the floor with them, uh, thinking outside the box uh, mm-hmm. and really surprised them. So I think it's appropriate. Uh, uh, the theme is appropriate here as well. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Her story, I didn't have time to dig very deep into it. Um, Frankenstein is a story that has been very inspiring for Melina and they had an existing track album. Oh, cool. And she's like obsessed with the story of Frankenstein and the backstory of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley's life. Yeah. And, her journals and um, kind of like her life, her biography and what led up to writing it and what came after. So I feel like our piece um, was just, you know, like a salute to the backstory rather than the actual story of Frankenstein. That's great. That's really great. Uh, So I'd love to switch gears slightly. You've, you've talked about having so many different, collaborators and really outstanding collaborators. Um, and I'm lucky enough to include myself in that list. What do you look for? What do you, in a collaborator, what do you want them to bring to the table? And how do you, you know, how do you instinctively say like, I want to work with this person or not besides maybe that they're already doing interesting work. Although is that, I assume that's a part of it. Yeah. It, I mean, their work is definitely a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think more than anything though, it's a vibe. Yeah. It's a vibe. It's a feeling. Yeah. Um, it's like your impression of how you might be able to communicate together. Uh, and for me, it's like, I just admire my collaborators so much. And it's always really important to me that they bring themselves to the table because I don't know what I want to do. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I (laughs) need people, you know, to make me better and to like, um, to make the thing better and to make it newer and more creative. But I rely on the collaborations, uh, wholeheartedly yeah. but i think a lot of it just has to come down to can we have fun together yeah making this <laughs> which sounds so silly yeah but um good juju <laughs> yeah i think it's really important to emphasize what you're saying of like i i need the people the other creative minds around me to make the project better you know i think a lot of people will look at someone like yourself and think like, oh, the lone genius, right? And like Steve Jobs and a lot of other, uh, you know, successful people uh, in our kind of culture here in the States in particular, I think, you know, it's like, oh, well, this, you know, this one singular person was such a genius that they made it happen. And like, I like, yeah, leadership is important, but like the lone genius is a complete bullshit myth. Like I, and it's so evident to those of us that work in the creative arts, I think. When I think of Robin, I think like Robin has phenomenal taste and like brings really interesting collaborators to the table, which is why your work is so varied and so interesting. I mean, I think you said it, right? Like you need creative people to make the project better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, definitely. And how how do you progress whatever you want to call it, art, a project, 
how do you progress it or how do you make things that are new if you don't continue to like bubble and blend and uh, form ideas? Part of what I see in your work and most of the work that I really respect and admire uh, out of anyone is, you know, you you as a choreographer are like, okay, this is where we're going and this is where the ideas came from. But like being able to strike the balance between like not just giving the creative team free reign, so to speak, but trying to give them, uh, you know, uh, trying to show them where you're, you want to go with the project, but then allowing them to bring themselves to that and kind of have it, uh, affect the overall aesthetic of the project and affect where it maybe where it goes, if it needs to, you know, that like, that's so impressive to me. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, thanks. I, I don't, I always feel like I really don't know what I'm doing. Like I, <laughs> I, just, like I just try to kind of keep on going and keep learning. I mean, I think like you knew me when I started, Yeah, I wasn't as collaborative then that as I am now, I've learned a lot in, you know, those 10 years and uh, a lot about like a lot more about what is interesting to me. And what's interesting to me is um, kind of like larger picture things. I think like I'm learning about what you're talking about, uh, about how to like best have a vision and then get like awesome people together to go like take that vision to the next level. And then we bring it back and like, um, you know, streamline it. Like that kind of work is, I would say at this point, more interesting to me than making up dance steps. Now you're, what are you, you're working on something right now with Hubbard Street. It's another undercover episode. Is it, is that right? Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It's the first idea that I had after like COVID really locked us down. Uh, that made sense for me yeah. to move forward with. What's the, what's the presentation medium going to be? Are they, is it going to be a digital presentation? Or are they going to uh, be performing it? on a street somewhere with a circle of cones around where the dancers are. What's the, <laughs> that can be the next, that can be episode 19. Nice. Cone. Cones. <laughs> cones. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, cone distance. No, this one is going to be, um, a digital performance. Okay. It is, we're going to present it on a Vimeo and it's, going to be a streamed performance the actual dance the 50 minute undercover is going to be recorded but it's going to in the evening will include a half an hour pre-show and a half an hour post-show nice that um will be live and like include you know fun little ditties from the artists and q a and um, we have this awesome partnership coming out with bungalow nice uh, by little brow okay so yeah, there's going to be a lot of fun little surprises woven into the evening. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. I think the reason that I decided to roll with this idea is because it it's something that is pretty unaffected by COVID. Like in the greater scheme of things, what we're making right now yeah. uh, is a product that is something that we would make regardless because it's a film. So, yeah. uh, 
yeah, it's just the way we have to make it. There are different challenges, you know, in that um, I'll be standing outside with a mask on, yelling directions <laughs> through their porch for you yeah, know, yeah. Years, okay, why don't we try to move this light here? And uh, or like with David and Jack and Kelly, they're uh, they're living in Michigan right now. Oh wow! So the way we are, the way we did it is through FaceTime. Yeah, and they would just FaceTime me into their phone, or like I would see through their phone the framing. So we worked, you know, we rehearsed that way, yeah. we uh, spaced that way, we lit that way, and then we are we like filmed that way that we really went through the whole section and talked about every angle, Mm -hmm. every transition, every light, every, like every shadow, everything. And it's, I don't know, it sounds sort of crazy, but (laughs) it felt Jack, Jack said it best, you know, after we had our session, she said, this feels, this is undercover. This feels so much like undercover. Exactly. It was a great feeling because it, it was a feeling of a return to, ourselves and this is what we do yeah. and we're not in the same room but it sort of doesn't matter like if we're doing the same work that we would do regardless so that's something i'm really excited about is that um it's it's a, a project that feels good and it feels like us and it feels you know pretty unaffected yeah yeah that makes sense i like that I'd love to shift gears a little bit because one of the things I want to ask you about is, um, and I'm trying to ask everyone about particularly the parents that I know is having a work-life balance and how becoming a parent has affected your creative process and your priorities. You know, I think there's a lot of people assume that if you're going to be a dancer or a choreographer or uh, a lighting designer or have a creative profession that it, doesn't work, uh, that it doesn't coincide with having, you know, more traditional things in your life, like a marriage or kids. And I think that's completely a myth. And I think that dancers and artists make really cool ass parents. Uh, so I'd love to, to get your take on motherhood and, uh, and how it's affected you uh, both as a person with work-life balance, but also your creativity and your creative process. Uh, well, motherhood was something that I wasn't sure if that would be in my cards. Um, and I just feel so lucky that it happened to me. Knox is my favorite person in the world. Yeah, yeah. He is like a little insightful ball of, craziness like and I like I hope yeah. that like he's just so creative he says like just like things to me sometimes that come out of nowhere yeah. and I just feel like we must have known each other in a past life or <laughs> have some sort of like weird wise old <laughs> owl in him like he just really inspires yeah it's 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 awesome I think I yeah I think he fuels me in ways creatively that I don't even know, or like that I don't know that it's a Knox thing. Yeah, you know, it's just like he's just part of me. He's part of who I am now, so I, that that goes into the work. I um I always have to laugh at my dancer friends that have 
uh, married other dancers or movers or choreographers and then have these like crazy kids that are <laughs> artistic, but also like have boundless energy. You know, Taryn, Taryn's another great example. I mean, and Andrew, your husband, obviously phenomenal dancer. Right. And like fantastic person. Uh, and it's like, of course, you guys have this cool ass kid. Like, <laughs> you know, you're both really great artists and really great people. I'm a little bit concerned because lately he's been talking about wanting to be a dancer and a choreographer when he grows up. Oh, wow. And I feel like your parents that like, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> okay, well, maybe for a while, but <laughs> what, what else do you want to be? What yeah. Else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. You sound like my mother a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not squashing it, but I'm not fully like, uh, throwing him in any classes yeah yeah he's uh you said he's five now no yeah he's five have you um being an artist yourself has it um has it caused you to say uh consciously i want my child to experience these things in particular as they grow and develop uh you know like for example i when i think about if I'm ever lucky enough to become a father, like my parents had us, uh, you know, because they were musicians, they, um, encouraged us to do, I mean, a lot of things and they never forced us into anything, but we, they definitely were like, you know, you should learn piano younger, you know, and kind of got us into things like music or dance that, you know, maybe you, uh, you wouldn't appreciate, you know, maybe come easier to you at a younger age, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel, do you feel like you've made decisions about Knox in that way? Or is it just kind of come naturally because you are who you are? So far, not, I don't know, not really. He, he has very strong ideas about what he likes and what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. <laughs> um, and so far he's got like a pretty cool, varied palette of interests. So which is like include music and dance and swimming and um, baseball, you know, like yeah. he likes a lot of stuff. So I feel, I don't know, hopefully he's soaking in some, <laughs> some good knowledge. Yeah. Some, like, stuff, some. Well, I think it's impossible for him not to, you know, I I've seen this with my friends that have had kids and I've seen this in my own life. Like, you know, you kind of, when you, I think when you have parents who love you and are there for you, like, uh, you know, their personality and, and parts of their personalities become parts of you in ways that you like, don't even realize, you know, and at different points in your life too. I mean, Marissa keeps rolling her eyes at me because I'll make a, a pun or a joke or something. And like, it will be exactly what my father would say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's not, you know, like it just comes out of my mouth and I, I've got like, Oh, wow that's a, that really is a Rodney ism, you know, like, and I don't, you know, and I wasn't trying to, it's just like it somehow got inserted into my DNA somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. I feel the same way about um, my parents too. So many of their likes are my likes. And I think that I, I don't know, somewhat unknowingly do that to Knox too. I mean, because he, now he loves Prince. He loves David Bowie. <laughs> he, um, we watched like 
Wes Anderson movies yes. together. Yes. Um, he, yeah, the poor kid. Like <laughs> we've been having a Friday night movie night during the pandemic, and we've just rolled through like every awesome '80s movie there is, like Goonies, Back to the Future. Oh my Back god! Back to the Future Part Three. <laughs> I really want him to watch Labyrinth, but he won't watch it. Oh man, that's a uh, uh, that's a classic, and like also like kind of bizarre for. I remember Goonies and Labyrinth both as a kid being like uh, uh, like I couldn't look away, but also they were like really not traumatic experience. They were just you know I was really scared. You know I was really yeah. feeling for them. It's part of what makes them such great movies. Yeah, Labyrinth is a little bit scary. We made the mistake of showing him the never ending story. That's another one. Exactly what you're talking about. He was terrified, but wouldn't stop watching it. Oh, yeah. Falcor! I was like, oh my gosh, I'm causing nightmares for decades right now. No. Oh, man. No. I remember watching Never Ending Story, and like, it was a moment where the kid reading the book, like, you know, puts it away and like closes the windows and like throws it. And I was like, all right, when he did that, I was like, oh, thank God, you know, (laughs) (laughs) to me, like it's, it's, uh, you know, and I, and I've talked with a couple other people about this on the podcast, like the idea of, uh, I look around to, uh, my friends and colleagues that are in, uh, industries that aren't uh, you know, non-creative industries, uh, in many different ways, you know, they're engineers or they're, uh, in corporate financial management or whatever. And they, you know, something like this pandemic comes along or, uh, or a new project comes along or, you know, uh, and they're asked by their leadership to think creatively, right. Think mm-hmm. outside the box, like come up with creative solutions. Right. You know, and I let a lot of corporate events too. And, you know, a lot of these speakers that talk about good leadership, they talk about how you need people that think creatively and all this sort of stuff. Right. But at the same time, we, uh, you know, we, we look at arts education and we look at exposing kids to things like music and dance as like a secondary thing, like, oh, it's a luxury. Right. But in reality, it's so essential to us as human beings. And Learning, being creative is something you can do in any medium, you know, even if you're an an engineer, which you think of as like, you know, a a very structured, very um, kind of straight laced industry. But like, think of how many engineers have had to think creatively about solving a problem, right? And like, I, I look at, I think that creativity in general is a superpower, you know, which is why I'm so impressed by someone like yourself. And I think if you are exposing your kids to stories like The NeverEnding Story or shows like Harold and the Purple Crown, then like inherently they are learning to be creative and learning that creativity is important. So I think they're better off for it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we, you know, the world wants innovation, right? We can't, we can't just stop innovating. That takes, that takes creators. Yeah, it does. It really does. Cool. Um, so, uh, all right, those are really all the 
questions that I've got, Robin. It's been really fun talking to you. I know. Yeah. I love talking with you. Oh, good. Thanks. Robin, thanks for being here. Thank you, Matt. This has been another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Robin and her work, please visit robinmineckowilliams.com, spelled R-O-B-Y-N-M-I-N-E-K-O-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S.com. Or you can also find her on Instagram at rmineko, at rmw underscore artists, at undercover episodes. You can also find her on Facebook at Robin Mineko Williams and on the Facebook page for Undercover Episodes. Next up for her is a co-production of Undercover Episode number 18, Home Video, with Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, and the continuation of Echo Mine and Echo Mine version 2 with Caliphone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.